The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for the last three. Well, welcome church across Bridge Brickle. How you doing this evening? Amen. I'm, I'm still recovering from that time of worship. Anybody else? Unbelievable. It's, uh, I always am grateful for the time to come together each and every Sunday and be with you all and worship uh, together. It's one of my favorite parts of the week. And I just sense like when our band is leading and all the talented musicians, it's more than the talent. It's the spirit by which they lead, uh, that they are worshiping and leading us. And, you know, Jesus promised us that when two or more are gathered, he is in this place and he is in our midst. And I sense that each and every week, and I hope you do as well. For those of you online, welcome. We're so glad that you are joining us online. If you live in Miami, come and be in the room. Uh, for those of you in the room, there's nothing like being in the room, right? Can I get an amen? amen? Amen. That's to you guys online, but we are so glad that you're there. Tune in, join us in the chat, and uh, we're grateful for you uh, tuning in this evening to worship with us. Tonight, we are in episode three of our brand new series to start the year called The Last Three. As we've been saying, this series is going to go all the way up until Easter. We're moving through the book of Mark. Uh, the Gospel of Mark focuses on the last three years of Jesus' life, which is why this series is called The Last Three, because it's focused on the life, public ministry of Jesus. Now, one of the things I was considering this week is that each and every one of us in this room had a unique childhood. We're from different cities, we're from different countries, we have different opportunities, we had different struggles, we had different family structures. There was all types of differences within each of our families. But one of the things that is true for almost every single child, regardless of where they're from, is that there are a few things that we all go through, we all experience as children, or that we value. One of those things is making a wish. Every child in the world, I believe, has that desire, that attraction to making a wish. There's many, many moments in our childhood where we hold on to wishes and we make a wish. When you blow out your candles on your birthday, you make a wish. You can't tell anybody. I don't know why that's a rule, but you can't tell anybody. When you blow out the candles, you make a wish. Or when you are looking at the clock and it turns out to be 11-11. Don't know why. But when it's 11-11, you've got to make a wish. When you're writing out that list for Santa, there's always one thing that's bold, underlined, starred, which is a wish. Santa, I remember one year I said, Santa, all I want is a monkey. Santa did not deliver. You have a wish. When you're a child, you think about your future and you have a wish of what you want to become. An athlete, an astronaut, an actor, a fireman. Some of you fulfilled those dreams. Some of you are like, well, I'm way off. Have a wish. How about when you go to a mall and there's a fountain? You ask mom and dad for what? A penny. You flick it in the fountain and you make a wish. Childhood is full of wishes. 
We make them all the time. And, and the reason I think a wish is so attractive and so powerful, something that's consistent across every single childhood and every single person in all different countries, is that when you hold on to a wish, it's something that you believe deep down that if fulfilled, is going to make your life happy. It's going to bring joy and completion to your life. It's going to actually create the life that you desire. It's something good that you want for yourself. A wish is really a dream that is born out of a belief that if you receive it, your life will be set and complete. You know, we know that the, there's power in a wish because one of the most famous movies that Disney made for when many of us were children, or I don't know, it was probably made before we were children, but it was big at least when I was a kid, which is Pinocchio. Pinocchio, centered around a wish. What's the famous song from Pinocchio? When you wish upon a star. Some of you are like, what's Pinocchio? You got to go watch it, okay? You got Disney Plus now, no excuses. When you wish upon a star. Listen to the lyrics of this song. This is like the most 2022 song of all time, even though it was written like 40, 50 years ago, okay? Here are the lyrics. When you wish upon a star. Makes no difference who you are. You want to sing with me? Anything your heart desires will come to you. I thought it was come true. It's come to you. If your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. When you wish upon a star as dreamers do. Hey, next week, make sure you're here. I'm leading worship. Just joking. There would be nobody here if that happened. But it's all centered around this wish that Pinocchio wants to be a real boy. And if he just gets that wish, if that happens in his life, everything will be perfect. He will be happy. He will be fulfilled. We all have these things. And here's one of the things that we all know. Even as we grow up out of childhood and we become adults, we do not let go of wishes. We still have them. We maybe label them something different dreams maybe but we have these deep-seated desires these wishes that we believe that if they come true if we achieve them if we find them if we discover them within our life we will be fulfilled we'll be content we'll be happy our life will be complete we'll be living the life that we want to live and sometimes our wishes are a little bit more discreet we're not as like bold because some of them are far-fetched and so maybe you walk by brickle city center mall fountains with a penny and it's a discreet flick in don't let anyone see that you're like 35 years old, still making wishes in fountains, but you still do it. Maybe you still 11-11 in the car. You make a wish. We still have them. There's something attractive and powerful about a wish. And tonight, as we get into our, cha our chapter in, in Mark chapter 2, we're going to see a man who had a wish. And his friends who had a wish for him and Jesus' interaction with them. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there, Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 1 through 12. It's a story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. And if you have the Crossbridge Brickle app, as I always say, make sure you download it, you open it, click on the notes section, and there's all the passages there. There's extra quotes that we'll be reading as well as other sermon notes to help you track through. We have a big value here at Crossbridge for you to participate in the sermon, not just receive. And so we want you to take notes. We want you to read. We want you to listen and engage as well. But let me bring you up to speed before we jump into Mark chapter 2 because the past two weeks we've been in Mark chapter 1, but there's been a lot that's happened actually between the time that we left off last week and we pick up here in chapter 2. Mark chapter 1 is full of events. 
So we saw last week that Jesus, he has now revealed his public ministry to the world. He was baptized. He was driven by the Spirit into the desert. And he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights where he fasts and he prays. Now when he comes out of that temptation, he goes into his public ministry and he begins to gather the very first disciples. So he goes to Simon, who is renamed Peter, Simon Peter, and he goes to Andrew, who are fishing, and he calls them to be disciples. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they leave their nets and they go and follow Jesus. And then Jesus comes upon James and John, who are sons of this man named Zebedee. They're tending to their nets. And Jesus says, follow me. They leave their dad and they go with Jesus. So there's four disciples now who are going with Jesus as he moves into his public ministry where he's going to begin preaching and working miracles, healing people. He goes, and we don't see this actually in the book of Mark, but in another gospel, we see the very first miracle is that Jesus goes to a wedding and he turns water into wine. Can I get an amen? First miracle, great way to start. It's a crowd pleaser. And then he continues going forward and he begins now to go into the ministry of healing. So he begins to heal people physically. He heals a child who is terminally ill. He heals people of spiritual oppression who are, who are plagued by spirits, evil spirits and demons. He begins to heal people of leprosy. He's moving all throughout the Sea of Galilee, which is the region where he's stationed. There's a town there by the name of Capernaum where he does several miracles and kind of a home base for Jesus and his disciples. And he's becoming locally famous by what he says and by what he is doing. So we pick up now in Capernaum, Mark, or Mark chapter 2, and he is in Capernaum again. And here's what we read, verses 1 through 12. It says this, And he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. They did not, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening, they lit down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to focus on one thing in this passage. Now, there's a lot of different angles that you could take this passage. There's so much that God is teaching us just in 12 verses right here. He's teaching the value of friendship. But I want to focus on one thing, and that is this, that your wish is not your greatest need. So that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Is our wish our greatest need? And what Jesus is going to teach here 
is that your wish is not your greatest need. So the scene is like this. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's becoming locally famous. So now that he's there, people are crowding around. They want to hear what he's going to say. They want to see what he's going to do. So he's in a house, and it's so packed that it's packed all the way to the door, meaning nobody can get in any way into the house, the windows, the doors. Nobody can get in. Packed in there. Now, there are four friends who hear that Jesus is there, and they have a friend who's paralyzed. So they've heard about Jesus working miracles, and so they go get their friend. They carry him on a mat. They want to bring him inside, but there's no room. So what do we do? Here's the power of friendship. They climb up on the roof, and the roofs of these houses back in ancient times in the first century were typically flat roofs because you would go up there in hot moments of the day or in the, where the sun is setting and kind of enjoy the breeze. So they're up on the roof, and they start to dig. Now, the roof would have been kind of clay that was hardened with sticks and twigs, and so they are digging through this roof over where they believe Jesus is, and everybody inside begins to see that debris is falling down from the ceiling. And you know how, like, have you ever dug into something before where it takes a while to get down, but once you get a little hole, it starts to go really fast? Like, that's how I imagine it happening. All of a sudden, people are looking, they're listening to Jesus teach, and he's preaching, and there's all this conversation happening, and debris falling, and people look up, and there's like a little hole, and now it starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and where is everyone's eyes fixed? On the ceiling. Imagine if that happened right now. Just all of a sudden, you know, with the storm that's happening today, who knows? Could just come right in. So everyone's looking up, they're seeing the debris come down, and it's getting ripped open, and a man now gets lowered down before Jesus. Remember, everyone is there because of Jesus. So they want to see what he's going to do. Jesus looks at this man who is obviously crippled, and everyone in the room knows it. Now, you may say, I, I didn't read that in the text. Well, here's how I think it's very likely that everyone in the room, including Jesus, knows this man. Because back in ancient times, if you were paralyzed, if you had a physical ailment, the only way that you could actually earn money for your family was beg. So what families and friends would do is they would take people who were lame, who were paralyzed, and they would carry them out in the morning to the city gate, to entering in and out of the city, or into the marketplace, the center of the city. They would lay them there on a mat, and they would beg all day long. Then they would come into the evening and pick them up and take them home. So their job was to sit in the busy parts of the city and beg for money. And so everyone in the city, remember these cities are not like Miami. They're much smaller cities around this really kind of small lake in the northern region of, of Israel, Palestine. And everyone knows this man. They've seen him all the time. They pass by him all the time. He's been there presumably for years upon years. So he's lowered down before Jesus and people have heard about what Jesus has been doing, the, the children that he has saved from death, terminally ill, the people who were possessed by evil spirits that he has cast out, the people who were born with leprosy and had leprosy, and they were healed and clean, cleansed. And then this paralyzed man is before Jesus, and what does everybody expect that Jesus is going to do? What do you think? Heal him. Because his greatest need is very clear. He needs to walk. What do you think his greatest wish is? To walk. That's why he's there. That's why his friends brought him there. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, Son, 
Your sins are forgiven. Now, everyone in the room is questioning him. We read that in the text. Why? Because that doesn't make any sense. It feels as if actually Jesus is insensitive. Like, Jesus, you know who this man is. You know his greatest need. His greatest affliction is that he can't walk. He's paralyzed. What? Your sins are forgiven. How about you're healed and you can walk? We've heard what you can do. Why would you say your sins are forgiven? You see, the question that you have to ask yourself when you read this is, does Jesus know something we don't know? Does Jesus know something that we don't know? The Bible has a very cutting verse and challenging verse to us. It says this, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the what? Heart. We look at the outward appearance. Almost every single one of us that has a wish or a dream, it is something physical. It's something with our career, it involves romance, it involves opportunities, it involves some type of lifestyle, some type of family structure. It involves something that we want to experience or gain or have that is physical in nature. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Jesus is seeing something that we don't see. And when Jesus looks at this man before him, and everyone else sees that he is clearly in need of a working, able body because he's paralyzed, Jesus sees something else first. He sees his heart. He sees his sins. That's why he looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to be very clear on like what he means by sin. Sin is not simply just the bad things that you do or the bad things that you think. Sin is also the good things that you don't do that you should do. Sin is also living without reference to God. It is living in the world that God made without acknowledging and surrendering to the very God who made it. It is living, thinking, my greatest wish is in fact my greatest need. That is also sin. And everyone here in this room believes that what this man needs more than anything, the greatest blessing that he could receive is physical healing. And Jesus here is challenging everyone in the room. He's challenging the man who is paralyzed. He's challenging the friends on the roof. And he's challenging you and I as we read this. He's challenging our perception of what really needs healed. What is our greatest need? Where God wants to first move and change and affect. He's challenging us. Challenging our belief on what makes life full. He's driving us to go deeper. It's as if Jesus is looking at the crowd and looking at us and saying this. I know that when you look at this man, you think that the greatest blessing in his life is for him to walk. Clearly, if he was able to walk, it would bring great joy to his life, great joy to his family and friends. It would dramatically change his life. Clearly, it would be a blessing, but you believe it's the greatest blessing and you're wrong. You think it will make his life happy, that he will feel complete, that now he will finally be living the life that he's always wanted to live. You're wrong because if you wait six months, 
discontent will come up again. Discouragement will find him again. There will be a new wish that he will have that he will seek after to find fulfillment because even though he received an incredible blessing of being able to walk, it will not be enough. The greatest need is for his heart to be healed, for his sins to be forgiven. There's an author by the name of Cynthia Heimel. She wrote for several papers and articles, and she had many friends that were seeking after fame. Many of them became celebrities and famous actors, and she writes about the pursuit of fame. Here's what she says from her experience with her friends. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because of the giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And then she says this quote that is haunting, and I think it's important to allow it to sit with you for a moment. She says this, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Whoa. <laughs> you see, what she's saying here is that when you find your deepest wish fulfilled, even from her perspective, she was not a follower of Christ. This is her perspective as she views her friends. Even when her friends achieved the very thing they had lived their whole life for, it didn't fulfill them. It didn't provide what they thought. It actually made them unpleasant humans because that wish that was going to fix everything, in fact, did not. There's a question I think we should be asking ourselves, which is this. What is your deepest wish? What is that one thing that if you were really honest, if you went to small group this week and you were really vulnerable and you were to say, let me be honest, this is the one thing that I believe that if I find, if I discover, if I achieve, that my life will be bearable, it will be happy, and I will be content. It's the only thing I really need. Does it involve your career? Does your wish involve romance? Does it involve children? Does it involve friends? Does it involve fame or wealth? Does it involve even, as we see with this paralyzed man, physical healing of a sort, mental healing of a sort? You see, the real problem that Jesus is getting at here, which is our real problem, is that we seek to build our lives oftentimes on other things than Jesus. We seek to build our lives on our deepest wish, a, a relationship, a career, achievements, wealth, fame, whatever it may be, we begin to seek to build our lives upon that. And then what happens is when we find it, it doesn't provide what we want. 
So what, typically what happens, when we begin to build our lives on something that's other than Jesus, on these greatest wishes, these deep desires of our heart, if we have not found them yet, we're frustrated and we're angry and we're envious of other people that have the very thing that we want. And then for those of us that have found some of those great deep wishes that we held on to and we achieved them or we discovered them, then we also feel frustrated and unhappy because now we realize that our first wish didn't do the trick and we have to find a new one. We have to find a new one that this one's going to work now. See, when you make your greatest wish your savior, you find out it becomes your devil. It becomes your devil. And many of us have made our wishes our savior. Our wish has become our Savior, and when you do that, it will become your devil. You see, one of the things that Scripture teaches us and Jesus reveals to us, which is contrary to what Cynthia Heimel says, is that God doesn't play rotten practical jokes. He doesn't. Jesus is not going to play a practical joke on this paralyzed man, and he's not going to play one on you. Because he gets to the core of the issue, he deals with the real affliction, he deals with what is really paralyzing this man, and that is the condition of his heart. And that's why he looks at him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. See, he is revealing that your wish isn't your savior, he is your savior. You, if you seek to build your life upon the fulfillment of your wish, you will be disappointed. Jesus is saying, you're to build your life upon me. I am your savior. I am the one that forgives when you fail. I am the one that you should be seeking after. I am the one that can actually fulfill your life and complete it. And maybe tonight, you're here because you're looking for God to fulfill your greatest wish. I'll be honest, I think a lot of times we come to God in his word or in prayer or to church because we're looking for God to kind of acknowledge what we're doing so that he can give us a little bit of a boost forward to achieve that deepest wish in our heart. Like, God, here, I'm, I'm doing it. Do you see? I'm reading. I'm praying. I'm going to church. I'm doing the things you want me to do. Now just help me move forward so I can achieve that real Savior in my heart, which is that deep dream, that wish. And Jesus is telling you and me, as he tells everyone in that room and that paralyzed man and the friends on the roof that we need to go deeper. We need to go deeper. Many of you know, and I say this often, that I am a man who loves fantasy novels. Don't worry, I'm not going to mention Lord of the Rings like I do every third sermon. I'm going to mention Narnia tonight. Any Narnia fans in the room? Yeah, there we go. Chronicles of Narnia, if you're unfamiliar, you may be familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, certainly the most famous of all of the Narnia movies and, and novels. But there's another one that's, that's really good. It's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Any fans of that one? Yeah, we got four of you in the room. Here we go. So in this book, we, we see this main character, one of the main characters, his name is Eustace. And Eustace is a very mean-spirited man. He's, he's a boy. He's mean-spirited. He's angry. Everyone hates him, and he hates everybody. He's, a, he's insufferable to be around. And he boards this magical boat called the Dawn Treader, and he goes on this journey, and they stop off at an island, and Eustace gets off the boat. He begins to explore the island, and he goes to this cave. 
he goes inside of the cave and he discovers treasure. Incredible amount of treasure. He climbs upon the, the treasure, he, the gold is there, and he begins to think to himself, I have finally made it. I have finally discovered the very thing that I needed. I have achieved my wish. I'm going to have all the money in the world, and I'm going to be able to look at everybody that ever said anything negative to me that was joking with me. I'm going to be able to prove them wrong. I'm going to be able to get back at them because of all of this treasure that is mine. And he falls asleep on the treasure. It says, with dragonish thoughts in his heart, these evil, beastly thoughts in his heart. And he wakes up, and he's a dragon. Because he fell asleep on this treasure, his greatest wish achieved, he wakes up a dragon, a beast, this evil creature, and he cannot escape it. And so he begins to now embark on a new life, which is a life of despair. It was not what he wanted. We see later in the story that he meets Aslan, who, if you've read the Narnia books, you know is the Christ figure. And Aslan comes to Eustace, and he tells him that for him to be healed, for his life to be changed, and transformed, he needs to undress. Now, Eustace is a dragon. He's not wearing clothes. So he tells him he needs to undress, and Eustace is thinking, what does that mean? And so he begins to think, oh, that means I need to rip off my dragon skin. I'm not meant to wear this. And so he begins to rip off his dragon skin, and he pulls off one layer of skin, only to find that there's another layer underneath. So he rips off the second one, only to find a third layer. Rips off again the third layer, and he's still a dragon full of dragon skin and scales, and Aslan looks at him and says, you have to go deeper. You have to allow me to go deeper. Eustace later recounts this event, and he says this, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught a hold of me. He threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw... I turned into a boy again. You see, we are like Eustace. We are like the paralyzed man. We are like the friends on the roof and the crowd. We are people that believe that we have this wish deep down, this dream, that if achieved, if found, our life will be complete. It will be full. We will be happy. We don't need anything else. We just need this one thing. And when we pursue that, it will creating us these beastly thoughts, a life that is dragonish, a life that is a life of despair. And the only answer is not the fulfillment of all of our wishes as if that's going to satisfy. The only answer is to allow Jesus to go deep, to deal with the real affliction, to deal with the real paralysis, to allow Jesus, the great lion of Judah, to claw into your heart. And it hurts a little. 
It hurts to be exposed and to look at your sin and to allow God to really deal with the darkest and deepest and dragonish parts of you. But only for a little. Because what you find is when God climbs into those parts, when Jesus rips into your heart, and he says to you, son or daughter, I forgive you, you become the very person you were meant to be. Just like Eustace goes from a dragon to a boy, you'd find yourself a son and a daughter of the very God who made you. When you allow God into your greatest paralysis, which is your sin, it's what we really need. We really need a Savior. You see, right after Jesus says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven, immediately after this, as he perceives what the crowd is saying, he heals the man. He tells him to get up and walk, and he gets up and walks because Jesus is rich in mercy. And he heals the man, and the man walks out of that room, and his greatest wish is in fact fulfilled, but only after Jesus deals with the real need of his heart, which is the forgiveness of his sins. And it says that when he leaves, after he's healed, that the crowd says, they glorify God, and they say, we've never seen anything like this. Isn't that interesting? We are such predictable people. Jesus heals the man's heart. He forgives his sins, and the crowd questions him. The man is commanded to get up and walk by Jesus, and everybody was like, amazing. Because what do we look at? The outward appearance. And God looks at the heart. You see, each and every one of us we have wounds in our heart. We have pain. We have struggles. We have frustration. We have fears. We have anxiety. We have loneliness. We have dreams and we have wishes that are good. And God knows them and he cares for them. He's not insensitive. But sometimes we judge God's care based upon his activity in, if he's meeting our expectations. Hey, God, you're not giving me the blessings that I've been requesting I'm making a wish in prayers, and you're not answering them. Seems like you don't care. When God delays, it does not mean that he doesn't care. Sometimes when God delays, he's dealing with the real issue, which is your heart. He's dealing with your sin. He's dealing with your perception that is off base. He's preparing you even for that blessing that you will find later. Because he's rich in mercy. That's why we're told that we're actually to cast our anxieties and our cares upon God because he cares for us. Now, how do you know that God cares for you even when he's delaying? Even when you're like, God, I really desire this. I really want this. This is something that I've been praying for for so long in my life, and it's a good thing. And God delays. How can you still cast your anxieties and your cares upon him knowing that he cares for you because he's already supplied your greatest need? Jesus went to the cross and died for your greatest need, which was your sin and your shame and your guilt, and he buried it in the ground and he rose from the dead on the third day to give you forgiveness and freedom and new life so that when God claws into your heart, it may hurt for a little bit, but then you're healed and you're restored. You see, it is so important for us to understand why God heals. I want to tell you this. Anytime that God grants a blessing in your life, a prayer request comes true, a wish is given, 
Think about everything that God has done in your life and think about the things that you're praying for now. Do you want to know why God does it? Verse 10 and 11 tells us. Verse chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 says this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Why does Jesus heal the paralyzed man? So that everyone will know, including us, that the reason that God heals and grants and shows mercy to us is that we might know that he deals with our deepest affliction, our real paralysis. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Everything in your life, friends, points to Jesus. Every prayer request, every wish, every need, every pain. It is, God is pointing you right back to Jesus who wants to claw into your heart and make you into the very person that God has designed you to be and he's calling you to recognize which is a son and a daughter of the very God who made you. He's dealing with the real issue. Everything points back to him. He is the one that you need. You see, what we celebrate is that death is overcome for us. It is overcome that Jesus has already won, that the greatest healing is actually available. And so because of that, because we know God cares for us, we can come to God with all of our heart. Not just our list of requests, but all of our heart. Every part of it, even the darkest parts of it, the dragonish parts of it, we bring it all to God. And we trust him that he cares. And even when he delays, it does not mean that he's insensitive. Maybe sometimes he's delaying to point us back to what he's already done. So that we might celebrate not only when God does something physically in our life, but because what he's already done in our life. You see, don't question God at the power of him forgiving sins. Praise him for what he's done. See, what we see here, and I pray that this is what you walk out with this week, is that we are to be people that glorify God and praise God in every season. When God is delaying, when we are in a period of waiting, and when God answers prayer requests, when he grants wishes, we are to praise and glorify God and say this, we have never seen nor imagined anything like grace. Never. It is totally astounding that God would give us grace. Because apart from grace, we're dragonish people. And yet God makes us into exactly who we're meant to be, sons and daughters of the very king of this universe. Amen?